0: Trials, sidebars, hearings, settlement conferences, consultations, lawyers talk a lot. It's what they do for a living, and if you get into a conversation with one, they tend to have some pretty good tales to tell. This is Law Stories, where we bring you the best attorney anecdotes. And here's your host, the president and CEO of M2M Legal, James Skiles. Welcome to Law Stories. Well, this week, you'll be hearing from our guest, Kevin Lee, professor of law at Campbell University's Norman Adrian Wiggins School of Law. Kevin is a legal scholar with advanced degrees in philosophy and religion and has focused his intellectual work in the areas of philosophy and the development of law. Now he's building on his scholarship in law and philosophy and applying it to the development of law in virtual environments and the use of new and emerging technology in law. Kevin, welcome to the program.
1: Thank you for inviting me. I'm looking sure thing. Awesome.
0: Now, you and I both have a strong interest in technology and law. Tell us about uh, how you became interested in this area and your current area in the subject.
1: Well, <clears throat> I guess I have an you know, unusual entry into this area because uh, I come at it as a philosopher and a person who studied um, what you call philosophical anthropology or conceptions of human nature. And so what appealed to me in, in the area is first the uh, philosophy of artificial intelligence and thinking about how Uh, new concepts are changing our understanding of human nature and then how that impacts, um, you know, the way we understand law. I think really often people look at the technology as something that is in the law, sort of the law is shaping it, and they're not really sensitive to the full extent that uh, the technology is shaping the law. So... About five years ago, I got started looking at, not about six years ago now, I got started looking at these uh, developments that were going on and, and uh, just studying it and getting drawn in deeper and deeper.
0: Now, you made me bring up an interesting point. How has how has uh, the development of technology changed law as opposed to the vice versa?
1: Well, I mean, first of all, it, it's useful, I think, to consider that question historically. Um, Technology, information technology, has always had an impact on law. Right. So if you think back, uh, you can go way back and think about how writing affected law. But in the 20th century, um, you know, the difference between the way, say, Lincoln practiced law and the way it was practiced in the 1930s and 40s, and old movies like uh, uh, Twelve Angry Men or something, you know, um, in the in the old days. Um, there wasn't much precedent. Uh, it was hard to have precedent. There weren't, you know, if a case was decided on, and uh, in, like in North Carolina here in Raleigh at the state capitol, it may take months if not years for it to reach Asheville. Uh, and, you know, there were very few handset printed copies of, law, of uh, cases going around. So the law was often ta- um, practiced through treatises and um, maxims legal maxims. You, know, you can imagine if you ever see any of the transcripts of uh, Lincoln's trials, the lawyers sort of shout maxims back and forth at each other, you know, your honor, you know, that sort of thing. And um, it's only with the coming of John West and uh, the West, uh, you know, publishing company that commercial printing came into the law and it radically transformed the way it's practiced. You now today law is uh, pre- all about precedent and, uh, and, reporters are you know everywhere and what did that do to the law it made it easy to change the law it's very revisable now and that gave us much more law and that you know we're thick with law now in a way that um i think uh would be surprising to lincoln you know then uh, so the law has been changed by technology the current technology is certainly accelerating that process but it's also done something else in that um It's driven by information science, and information science has uh, radically uh, changed human self-understanding, to get back to my original interest. You know, human beings are now fully aware that they themselves are information entities, and, um, you know, we're um, not unique in that regard. And we're computational entities, and we're not unique in that regard. You know, computation is, is a, a, a fundamental feature of nature. So I have as much in in, in some regards as much in common with a slime mold, um, you know, as I do with my neighbor in that in that regard. And, um, you know, we may be more complex, but we're using the same processes. So I think that is really fundamental to our, our self-understanding, and that's going to have a longer impact, because it, it, in one sense, it, it makes us more radically concerned with uh, responsibility for the entire information environment, for example. Um, and there's other things, too. I mean, one of the benefits of the computers today is the ability to detect patterns. Right. You know, across data set. I mean, computers don't care what the data set is. They're not uh, bounded by disciplinary concerns. And no, so, you no, know... The- The old debates about realism and formalism look quite differently when you you can see patterns that run across data sets. They're not, you know, the law isn't a a unique autonomous normative system. It's being influenced by all sorts of social factors. And we can not only see them now, but we can map them and make predictions.
0: So given a particular set of facts, this could be used to predict certain outcomes based on on patterns and what the pattern is going to read of human nature?
1: i mean not only can it, i mean it is i mean we we and we see this all the time it's actually kind of you know um commonplace now right um we know that you know i always tell my students that if we could get the judge's facebook likes we could probably make you know a good guess on every case they're going to rule on that day
0: as though another reiteration of a of a a good lawyer knows the judge knows the law a great lawyer knows the judge right yeah but more than that
1: too right i mean um because it, it's a possible, it, you know and it's not only can be it is being done that you can get fairly interesting um predictive and uh, analytics on uh you know case by case judge by judge on motion by motion you know with this judge and these lawyers on this motion what's the outcome going to be um and that's you know but it's it, it's based on all sorts of factors um there's some studies that have been done you know it, we we might think you know it, it's not unusual to think that the outcome of a lawsuit is going to affect the market price of a stock, right? If the part, one of the companies is like, say the defendant's a publicly traded company, the outcome of a, of a lawsuit can affect the stock. Happens we, all the time. Yeah. And we can now do the reverse and find out how does the stock price affect the outcome of the lawsuit. Interesting. Walk, walk, walk me through that a little bit. Well, I mean, well, it's, there's not much to walk through, but I know that, you know, people do studies on this and, uh, there are correlations, um, and there—I um, imagine—there's all sorts of correlations that are, you know. Um, there's a great book, um, Carol uh, Catherine O'Neill, um, called "Weapons of Math Destruction," and she talks in, in her book about this a little bit. Um, sentencing um, on criminal court cases in Alabama tend to be much harder if the if the football team lost. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> Um, But, you know, and the computers can just find those patterns with, uh, you know, greater sensitivity than human beings. So, um, you know, that's changing the way laws practice. I think it's changing the nature of law itself.
0: I I agree with you completely. Uh, What, you know, with the... The uh, process of starting M 2 M legal. One of the biggest thoughts that went through my mind was the idea that uh, every aspect of positive law, every single piece of legislation, and every single fact to a particular case, and now as you bring in p- particular points, uh, you know, factors having to do with the judge, those are all data points, uh, and then the technology can be used to, you know, create an algorithm or use use algorithms to predict a result or create a uh for for example a a synopsis of a of a particular case at hand uh using that technology uh so you now what you're what you're saying is very much in line with what with, with what i've been i've been doing and what i've been thinking about
1: yeah it's um it's a fascinating time to be practicing i i just i i'm not practicing now and sometimes i um i wish i was and then you know sanity sets in and'm I'm glad i'm not so <laughs> <laughs> It's been a while <laughs> but yeah but i mean I, i'm fascinated by by where we're going and it's it's only going to get more interesting um you know, we won't i i sincerely believe it's not too many years before quantum computers come online and they'll hold many challenges for us and the software is getting better and it's writing itself now so why don't you tell
0: us a little bit about uh, some of the projects that you've been working on with with lawn technology
1: well, you know, uh, I teach a class in computational law, which is uh, sort of an introduction. It's a it's um, and when I teach it, it's a jurisprudence class that asks the question: What can be computed, and what can't, and how do we know? And um, so that's that's one class I do. Um, I've been sort of helping the school find adjuncts and building a program here. So we we now have a class in uh, programming for lawyers, and uh, we're really proud this year. Uh, Tom Brook, who's uh, taught the class, is a Campbell alum, and we were able to, uh, he was able to get Neoda Logic to uh, give us some access to their technology and uh, with his students, and um, uh, Ashley Campbell is the director of our uh, community um, law clinic. Uh, They were able to build um, an app that uh, guides uh, someone through the uh, expungement of juvenile records, uh, which is a huge, complex issue down here in, in North Carolina. And it, uh, by asking questions, it was a chat bot. to ask questions. And uh, based on the answer, it was able to tell them whether they, they were excluded or needed to talk to a lawyer. And, right. You know, and it, it's not been deployed or anything, but uh, it was a great project to demonstrate the, um, the power and the, the possibilities there. And I hope we'll be able to do more with that.
0: I hope so too that's that sounds a lot like what i 've been doing with with m two m legal we have our our chat bot for the purposes of doing uh estate planning intake is is ready to go and it 's going to be live by the end of the week uh, so similar idea uh, we uh, have our chat bot do the intake basically the 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 client goes into the system and they they uh answer basically get into a conversation with the chat bot there 's between Uh, probably about 25 and 75 questions depending on how complex the person's uh case is and then you know from from there we have the information necessary to do drafting of of estate planning documents so kind of sort of same sort of area that we're doing but um as we're doing with, with estate planning uh you've been doing it with uh with uh, with uh, expungement of records. It's interesting because I think the expungement of records is, is a very good application for the, uh, the uh, type of technology that we've been doing because it's, uh, it's, it's very much information based, based these, the, the, the uh, whether or not you can do it is very much based on the information that can be gathered from the user.
1: That's right. Yeah. And, and you know, we're concerned with, um, Access to justice issues here, and that's a, you know, a university. I think that's that's quite appropriate. And the bar association has been very supportive too, um, because there's such a great need. So we're looking at, uh, at continuing that project, God willing, with uh, Neota Logic. Uh, Neota has a fantastic product, and it made it so easy to build these things that you know my students who had no coding background built their their chatbots in about what three or four weeks. Yeah. No background at all, so it was really a great, um, a great pl- platform for that.
0: Well, um, I, I have uh, a, a bit of a background in, in in programming, mostly back in the old C plus plus days. So the logic of uh, of if then questioning and then having a having potential outcomes branching off of that, that's been the thought process that's been going through my mind. So uh, it's good that you've been been exposing your students to that type of thought process because it's how a computer thinks and it's how artificial technology and it's still somewhat in its infancy is is developing is based off of initially these if-then questions that, that build on to more complex questions.
1: Well, and, and with your programming background, I know you can get a lot more sophisticated. You know, I mean, we're talking about fairly simple expert systems. but. Mm-hmm really get into deep learning and and build systems around that is a little more complex and oh yeah but i'm getting there um and i'm hoping that uh you know we'll be able to begin to to do some of those more complex things here at the law school um i'm also teaching a class in design thinking for lawyers and I, i think um you know as the technology becomes more powerful the lawyers uh, who are are foresighted are, are asking, where do I maintain value, and in the in the uh, ability to be creative, to work in teams, uh, to uh, have processes in place for doing iterative designs that are client centered. Um, those are are really great skill sets, and that's what we're teaching in the design thinking class. Which is, uh, I have to say, I lucked into that. We're partnered with NC State's amazing design school, and um, we're, I think we're offering one of the, the best design thinking classes for lawyers in the country right now. So um, that's pretty exciting for me.
0: Now, now, why don't you explain for us a little bit more about the concept of design thinking?
1: So, I mean, design thinking is a process that's used in industrial design or consumer product design, um, but it brings a team of people together um, with through a process that, that's aimed at uh, becoming empathetic with uh, the end user, imagining how they're going to use it, testing that, those, those assumptions, designing a little bit, testing more. <laughs> you know? And uh, it's very much a process, and, um, and yet it takes practice and skills. And a really great teacher, and uh, we have a professor, Lou, from uh, the uh, NC State, who's the director of the design school there, uh, teaching the design portion of the class, and then I come in and try and show them how it's applicable in the, in the legal field. It's a great uh, experience. The students seem to be really taking to it. And um, I see like um, some of the Stan- – it started at Stanford. And uh, I think Northwestern has a, a great class there in uh, Chicago, Kent, and uh, Michigan State. Uh, they run some things at this school called MIT, which doesn't have a law school, so I don't know much about them.
0: Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah but, those that, that they're, they're kind of a, a minor player in this whole
1: thing <laughs> I think in the it, one of the great things about it is it, it teaches my students to work in teams of diverse people where everyone isn't a lawyer, right so You may be working with an accountant and a you know a social worker and a psychologist, industrial uh, behavioral psychologist, and they can all sit around and, and think about how to solve a problem and realize that you know there is definitely a role there for legal expertise but it has to integrate with all these other types of expertise. And that's not traditionally been a a strength for lawyers. No, (laughs) in
0: fact, it's been a huge weakness. Yeah.
1: (laughs) So we're really, I mean, we're really proud of that class and, um, it's gotten some good uh, attention. So those are the things I mean that I've been working on as far as big projects academically, um, trying to get back into writing on ethics. I'm really concerned about the ethics of all of this, um, uh, and particularly, the, and, the, and the politics of it. I'm particularly concerned with um, the directions, the, the ethical implications of the regulation of artificial intelligence. Uh, it's being deployed now in administrative agencies, and you know, you know how AI is. It needs to be trained towards some set of uh, goals. Right. So the question becomes, what goals are being optimized? In artificial intelligence is making decisions for an administrative agency.
0: Let's let's, let's go into that a little bit. Uh, where do you see the artificial intelligence being used for those ends, for good or for evil?
1: I mean, you know, I mean, it's been it's nothing new, right? I mean, there's some some uh, examples are like who gets audited, you know, in the IRS, right? Easy, fairly easy thing you you put out. Uh, you train it up with a bunch of markers for you know, tax violations that's not uh, difficult. How about who gets the kidney? ooh that's a tough one right yes uh, we could we can imagine a system that's optimized for well who knows what right I mean how would you like your your kidney um, recipient to be you know that that system to be optimized for i don't know wealth maximization so that the person who has the most to offer to society in terms of economic production is first in line for the kidney. That's icky.
0: That's a huge ethical dilemma.
1: Yeah, that's a huge ethical dilemma. And yet these kinds of decisions are being made. You know, there's that meme that goes around on on Facebook all the time about, you know, you have the uh, autonomous vehicle and does it hit the baby or the old lady, right? Right. Um, That goes, well, you know, there's bias built into that, right? There's bias a lot of bias built into AI, and we all know that now it's well documented, a lot of racial bias built into some of the systems but there's there's also ideological bias being built into these systems, and so part of what I want to do is um at least teach my students that that's happening, what it looks like and and let them know so that because if you know if lawyers aren't trained to deal with that kind of bias. And it's baked into systems that conceal their own operation. Then there's no hope, right? I mean, who's going right. to argue against that A coder? I doubt it. Uh, so we need to have lawyers who are sensitive to those those bigger uh, moral issues. You and, uh,
0: well, you think about it that that technology as it's developed is should be uh, should be objective as possible. The problem is, of course, you know that that's the ideal. The problem is that. You know These things are being programmed by human beings who have their own biases and have the ability and tendency to build in these biases into the systems that they're programming. So while the ideal is that the technology should be objective, it's always very subjective to the person that's creating it.
1: Right. And then you have this question of then, who's regulating the AI? And I can tell you, uh, there was a Brookings Institute study that suggested an administrative agency for artificial intelligence.
0: I'm not sure how I feel about that.
1: Department of AI. What do you think?
0: Y- yeah. N- n- no. Um. <laughs>
1: I, I mean, to me, what's, what's interesting about that, of course, is what regu- part of what they're going to regulate is the other administrative agencies. Mm-hmm. Which is, you know, and, and then also, like, I mean, I have AI in my car and in my cell phone, probably in my toaster oven. I mean, what part of my life will this a regulatory agency not have some you know influence over so uh, i i don't know it, it, and then <clears throat> what is the opportunity for democratic input into imagining the the way these systems get optimized the values that get expressed i mean politics in the best sense has always been about finding the common goods uh the values we seek together uh, as, a, as a people, you know, and, and we wouldn't want the artificial intelligence to get optimized for a technical solution that doesn't allow for that kind of politics. No. In part because the good of that politics comes from the process of it as well. I mean, we're, we're united together because we went through a process of deliberation. So
0: I think that's a, that's a huge point that, that people tend to forget, particularly in times as of now when, when politics is so incredibly divisive.
1: Right, right. And, you know, um, in the end of the day, what we don't want is to allow this crisis to be, you know, to, to be an opportunity to fill the space with uh, a dispassionate automated system that's optimized for more consumer capital.
0: More consumer capitalism, or even on the worst side, more government,
1: uh, you know, government intrusion. Uh, well, Yeah, government, inappropriate government intrusion. Right. Or, you know, just, I mean, you know, we we in in the U.S., we always favor free market solutions to these things. But um, the free market, this is an odd application for the free market, and it's not well worked out. Like, we don't really understand how the free market works in this era, and, and we need to have some time to think about it. But... You know, it's not as if we see our big tech companies acting with great moral rectitude and responsibility. I mean, uh, you know, I don't want to name names, but there's been some scandals lately, right? So, um, you know, and then you look at what they're doing in, you know, totalitarian countries or or, um, more centralized authority. um, And that looks horrifying, Uh, (laughs) you, you know um we don't want uh you know uh, a system like they have uh, some of the ai developments in china are just terrifying
0: oh yeah um abs- absolutely they they have it's extremely orwellian it,
1: it is you know and but i you know uh, do you really feel much better if it's you know uh, um you know a commercial enterprise that's gathering up the data and giving it to the government you know no <laughs> yeah. no um,
0: no that that's that's where that 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 the companies should that we uh, shall remain anonymous has it had its trouble. So,
1: well, you know, and I, I happened to hear, um, a general counsel from, um, Uber, uh, at a conference recently, it was a public conference. So I don't mind mentioning Uber, uh, speaking about what does it mean when you have a fleet of self-driving cars on the streets in your city? Well, part of what that means is every car is going to have a, uh 360 uh, you know, camera going, and that data is going to be collected and studied. But it, if you have, you know, thousands of cars on the street, you can pretty much put the entire city under surveillance, twenty-four-seven. And you know, who, what happens to that data? We we really need to have new thinking on the nature of privacy. How do we protect privacy in this era? Uh, and I, but I, I think that that really is a very deep question. It's not about how do we protect what used to exist, but how do we reconceive par- privacy for this new era that we're entering into? And, and, and think about its its functions in our own psychology, how does it function in, in our democracy? And, you know, there's whole traditions of, of I mean, the Greeks wrote a, a lot about the distinction between public and private in the democracy. We need to recover that that knowledge and bring it forward today to to inform these debates. I think, and that's not really happening right
0: now. No, um, again, the problem, biggest problem is that people don't understand the basics of philosophy, and you have uh, tech- people who are developing technology that don't have the philosophical background to comprehend that sort of idea, and then we have people who have a philosophical background that don't understand the impact of technology on it. So I think that the work that you're doing in that respect is extremely important.
1: Now, I'll add one more element into that, is that a lot of, uh, you know, Western tradition on on these issues was informed by sound theological traditions. And I think that that has to be a part of this debate as well. And that is really not happening much.
0: No, to, to the to the Opposite, the exact opposite, uh, philosophies that are rooted in a religious tradition are being tossed by the wayside in favor of uh, a sort of neo-objectivism.
1: And, and what I what I see happening is um, in in the U in the U S context, right? Is uh, basically I don't see much engagement on these issues on uh, sort of on the, uh, on the religious right. The evangelicals um, don't really get too much involved with. Examining closely the nature of technology or its good and evil, um, Catholics have been fairly dis- they have been distracted, maybe. Although I will say uh, there's an outstanding conference coming up in February at the Vatican, so I'm really hopefully be at that. But you know, and then um, on the on the um, on the left, we really not that really interested in it either yet. But I think that's going to change.
0: So you're thinking that the that. Uh, people within the Catholic Church are are going to be you know, putting more input into this dialogue.
1: I mean, there's there's some there's a like I say, there's a great conference that they're I, I forget who's hosting it, which um, um, organization, but it's at the uh, Vatican at the end of, of February. And um, uh, I looked at the the speakers, and they're some of the best um, minds in technology in, in Europe. I mean, there are people from Oxford and. You know, the EU and um, so there's some of the best regulators and then some some of the uh, best, you know, Catholic ethicists uh, will be there as well. So they're beginning to, to build those bridges, to start thinking about it. Yeah, the problem is, though, you know, the tech moves so fast that by the time you figure out a policy, it's out of date. Right. <laughs>
0: Yeah, that's that. That's the biggest problem, and then that that particular solution is no longer applicable to the situation.
1: Yeah.
0: So, so I think the probably the best thing to do is to be anticipatory and figuring out what the next innovation is going to be. In this case, I think what we've been discussing with AI is 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 uh, paramount to anything that is going on with the discussion because that sort of regime is coming extremely fast.
1: Yeah, yeah, that's definitely coming. Um, and like I say, it's not clear to me what. A quantum computer will mean for AI.
0: Oh, just a lot more faster computations and make it a lot more powerful. So. Yeah.
1: Um, it'll be that. But um, see, the problem is that um, classical computers follow logic that we can understand, right? Even though it may be concealed in a, a network, but we can understand how it works. But by its nature, quantum computing. It has veiled processes that we don't understand. So if you have quantum-based, you know, artificial intelligence, I'm not sure that we'll even be able to comprehend the way it works at a theoretical level. So I think that's a new, a new era. I'm not quite, like I say, I'm not quite sure what, what that means. It's more than just being faster. It reasons differently.
0: Kevin, thank you so much for joining us today with this very interesting and and highbrow conversation about law and technology. Uh, Hopefully, we'll be able to have you on again at some point in the future.
1: Yeah, I'd love to. I love talking to you. Thanks so much for inviting me.
0: Sure, no problem. Thanks. This has been Law Stories brought to you by M2M Legal. Please subscribe to us on iTunes or wherever you go for your listening pleasure. And if you like, please visit m2mlegal.com and partake in some of our various legal services. Like I said earlier, our estate planning chatbot is now live. So if you want to check that out, our services at this point are only available in Illinois because that's the only place where I have a law license but please check it out Uh, we'll hopefully be expanding to other states in the near future I'm James Skiles president and CEO of M2 Legal, and thank you very much for listening
1: Law Stories with James Skiles is a production of 1A Cast Media in association
0: with M2M Legal. All statements made by hosts and guests are their own and do not necessarily reflect the opinions of the producers or distributors of this program. Although the hosts and guests of this program are attorneys, no statements should be construed as legal advice. If you
1: require legal assistance, contact an attorney licensed to practice in your area.